Hello and welcome to The People I Know, a philosophical podcast with and about the diverse people I have met over the years as an African-American philosopher, dancer, academic, all kinds of titles. Today's guest is Kim Feinstein, realtor by day, Shakespeare authorship, scholar, linguist, and philosopher by night. I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm Ken Feinstein. We met in philosophy class. Yeah, I doing would, our, you know, well, I was doing my met. master's. <laughs> you were doing your you master's. You were doing your well. master's. I was, doing, I was doing my master's and we met in philosophy class, probably in Hume class, I don't know. And yeah. um, and we used to hang out in the that room, that, that TA room. You oh, were the yeah. head TA, right? You were my I boss, was. I guess, on some I level. That was right. That's right. Yeah, you were my boss. <laughs> so say you, you were my supervisor. Make and sure then one time, I, one time I filled in for you. Oh, goodness. That was fun. <laughs> um, so, so I can, we can dive in. Um, and my first formal question is how do you use philosophy today? Either okay. professionally or not professionally or just on a regular basis. I mean, should I talk about the Shakespeare stuff? Yeah, however you do. I mean, how, so you got, you, you have multiple degrees. Um, I was doing a little research on you and there's a lot right. in your brain that I never knew about. Um, so <laughs> as far as philosophy specifically or anything that you would classify as being philosophical, how do you use that in your everyday life? You know, for me, philosophy well, is not, I never looked at it as something useful as much as I had these questions and I had to figure out what to do with them, right? So philosophy is sort of a way to sort of grapple with my own issues or grapple with my own questions or sort of make sense of them in a way that I can cope with them. It's more like a coping mechanism for me because you have all these questions and part of it is because we sort of have philosophy in the background, right? So everywhere in the world, everyone's either heard a little philosophy or read a little bit, or read something that's influenced by philosophy. But until you study in depth, you don't know what people are really talking about. You don't know what the basis of those arguments are. So people like, what, what's the right thing to do? What should I do in this situation? And sort of people have these half digested philosophical answers. And until you study philosophy in depth, you can't understand what are the real issues. And so for me, that's what was philosophy was, you know, something that drove me to it is I didn't want to be confronted with these questions and not have the whole story. Mm. I don't think philosophy gives answers. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any answers at all <laughs> or anything, right? It's just like, mm -hmm. and it's disappointing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's been the main thing about my, my study in school is that I'm always disappointed, right? So yeah. I start in undergrad, I studied linguistics. And I mm. thought, oh, I was a kid, right? I thought, oh, I'm gonna study this, you know, Chomsky's generative grammar and all these fabulous theories, and they're gonna give me deep insights into language. And then I started studying this stuff. I'm like, you people don't know anything. They <laughs> they know certain things, like yeah. like there's certain like how language develops over time, historical linguistics. They're very clever. It works. Mm -hmm. They really understand certain things. Right. And you know, sort of how sounds are made, stuff they can they can describe it, but their deep theory, their deep, it, it means nothing, right? Mm. And they argue about it with no 
It's like philosophy. They argue about it with each other, go round and round in circles and have no resolution to it. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> philosophy is similar. We go round and round and round and get no solution to anything. But if you don't go round and round and round, you don't even understand the problem, right? And right. that's the same thing with linguistics. So if you need to understand about language and you can come with silly theories that you, you want to bludgeon uh, other people over the head with, but your silly theory doesn't really account for it or explain it. It's just another way of looking at it. And I look at philosophies the same way is that you get these different ways of looking at a problem or an issue. And once you know the main ways of looking at something, at least you understand the issue better. You don't get a solution to it. Mm -hmm. You've got to solve it. Sometimes because you have to act in life, right? You have to do mm -hmm. things. Right. But, so you have to do something, right? But it's not like there's some grand theory that's going to tell you what to do because they don't work that way. And yeah. so, but, but, which makes it seem like philosophy is the stupidest thing in the world to study. <laughs> but for me, it was like, wow, I'm so happy I'm doing this. Uh -huh. I really understand these things so much better. The things that I was a little bit worried about or you know, had questions about. And after studying it and studying, you know, taking classes and going to some things in depth, I felt so much better. Because I, not that I had solutions, but I, at least I knew I wasn't conflicted inside about what the issues were. I knew what the issues were and I could sort of make peace with whatever those are in a way that worked for me. So that's why I like philosophy. That's why I loved philosophy. And we were in, you know, we were in school together and that's why I enjoyed it so much. Mm -hmm. in, in addition to meeting fun people like you, right? But <laughs> the, um, just the opportunity to to resolve, you know, some of these issues in my own mind. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like ethics, right? For me, you know, what am I supposed to do? What decisions am I supposed to make? What is society supposed to do? Mm -hmm. You know, these ethicists pretend like they have some kind of system or theory that'll instruct you what to do. You <clears throat> follow their, their rubrics and at the end, you're gonna find out what you're supposed to do. What you learn when you study these things in depth is that none of this stuff works. It's not based on anything. It's all just people spinning, spinning around in circles. But spinning around in circles, you learn a lot, right? Because yeah. you, when you spin around in circles, you see things from every perspective, right? So it's good to spin around in a circle. You don't end up anywhere where you started, but at least you understand where you've been. So for me, that's what, that's what the, the value of philosophy to me, the main value of philosophy has been for me, I think. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point that has that keeps coming up uh, as I speak, you know, philosophically with folks. And, and in, in some ways it's very obvious, but in other ways, <clears throat> especially now that we are so so many years away from our formal studying of these these theories and these philosophers and whatever it was that we thought that we were gonna do with philosophy, that that, you know, I was very similar to you, you know, that's why I fell in love with philosophy. That's why I went ahead and decided to go to school for it. <clears throat> it was because of like, oh, I enjoy this spinning around in circle, at least with, in, in circles with some kind of parameters and guidance. Like, I'm not just wondering why I have this strange feeling in my gut or in my mind. 
now I can label it as, <clears throat> oh, that's my existential dread. Oh, that's right, me wondering right. what what ethics, what's right and what's wrong. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you know something exactly. metaphysical. So were you teaching? On it. Were you teaching? Actually, teaching philosophy? You've been mm -hmm. teaching at some, right? Yeah, yeah. When I was down in South Florida, I uh, so after grad school, I taught at uh, Diablo Valley College. For, oh right. Um, for a semester, and then I decided to leave California, so I went down to South Florida, and that's where I was teaching in uh, two community colleges. For. Do you for do you think it helped those students? Do you think it was useful to them or do you think it was just meeting some requirement for school? <laughs> Be honest, because I'm curious. You know, I, we have a lot of friends mm. who talk. Excuse me. A lot of our people in our program went on to these, you know, to teach it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm always curious if they really think they're making an impact in helping people mm -hmm. or if it's really just like almost like being a counselor to them and the philosophy is just right. sort of secondary to being being nice to people. You know what I mean? Right. So when I was doing the, the the student teaching at San Francisco State, that's when, so I'd wanted to be a teacher, like, since always. I want to be a right. dancer, a rock star, and a te or a teacher. Right. So that, like, since I was a kid, that's just what I wanted. And so when I was doing the student teaching at SF State, um, I realized that it was, I still liked it. It was still cool. I liked right. seeing those light bulbs come on in the classroom. I was fine with teaching this, like, introductory level philosophical stuff I wasn't trying to teach like high level Descartes or Hume or Nietzsche or none of that I didn't want right, to touch right. it like I left that to you all <laughs> like that just wasn't my my passion so when I finally got into doing it independently with you know I was out on my own doing it um there was definitely there were definitely the specific students particularly in the philosophy classes that they were just trying to figure out enough to pass. Right. And I was trying to teach things in a way so that they could pass or so that right, they could right. not feel like I'm trying to get them to do philosophy. I mean, these are people in a career college, like they, they just needed this course. <clears throat> but at some point, definitely in critical thinking, definitely in ethics, less so in philosophy, but at some point we came across some lesson where it would click that this was something relevant to life. Right. Whether it was they were because they were going to be nursing students and they just needed to understand that people have different perspectives. People come from different backgrounds and they had to like recognize that as relevant. <laughs> or, or if it was something greater, like, okay, once you have children, then life changes for x and y reasons um something about philosophy did open up minds or at least like cause a crack um at some point yeah i mean um, i yeah. was i taught well we were in the program together and, and as your you know listeners and viewers should know you were my boss for a little while because you were the <laughs> uh graduate student supervisor uh -huh. i guess of all of us so you were my boss for a little while and um, I taught for two semesters. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I taught anybody any philosophy at all, but what I, I did do, I sort of almost viewed it as like a practical course in like essay writing. And I okay. tried to make it very practical. So I you know, taught essay structure and had them write essays. And so for me, I sort of felt like I introduced some philosophical concepts, like we did the uh, arguments for the existence of God and stuff like that, which is fun and crazy. And I think like one student was interested in it and that was great. And I, I hopefully they were enthused by it, but 
you know, I sort of felt like, what can I give them that something that's sort of practical to take away from this? Yeah. You know, my charming face and my little jokes are, you know, <laughs> I, I aren't going to get it very far. So I thought, well, maybe yeah. if I could help them write an argumentative essay in yeah. a way that that makes sense and has structure and this kind of thing mm-hmm. might be helpful. So that that's sort of the you know tack I took. But you know, it was a required course, right? And so I knew nobody wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was, it yeah. was a weird experience. You try to entertain them if you could and yeah. make, it less, make it tolerable for them. But half yeah. of them didn't even want to be in college. Right. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, I, I, I should be doing something else. Why am I here? My mom made me, they would tell me this. You know, my mom said I had to go to college. So I'm here. How, how are you doing? Oh, gosh. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. well, I, I'm here too. I'm not sure I, why I'm here. So we're, <laughs> we're in the same boat. Why am I looking at you listening to myself talk? But, yeah. you know, it's that feeling, right? Yeah. But going that argumentative route, it, it definitely, it's one of, where do I start this thought? So these interviews, these conversations are part of <clears throat> uh, several, part of a larger project that I'm working on which is um, Make America Think Again. And okay. I'm doing some, some short videos. Uh, they're very quick lessons, quick critical thinking lessons for the average American. And then these conversations that are you know, casual, but also somewhat in depth, um, just about how we use philosophy as regular people, as, as much as, as regular as philosophers can be. Um, and so to go, when you say that you went that, that route of like, teaching people how to write an argumentative essay, that's something that I I touch on with this critical thinking stuff is just part of the reason that we keep missing each other socially and culturally is that we don't know how to freaking argue. I mean, we know how to like, I'm going to punch you with my words or actually punch you, but we don't know how to like listen, chew on what the person has said, come back with some kind of response to what they have said. (laughs) Right, right. Support what we, what we're saying with... (laughs) Well, that was the, just to touch on that, that was one of the hardest things my students had is, you know, I required three affirmative arguments and you deal with two counter arguments. So I'm saying, you know, you've got to figure out what's your, your smartest opponent, not your, your weakest one. What's your smartest opponent going to say to you and how are you going to counter that? Yeah. And, you know, it's challenging for them because they don't, they can't think of another way. So, you know, how could anybody not think about it this way, right? So it's like, right. I'm right. So they, there's no other argument. <laughs> My three are perfect. There's no, there's no other way to look at it. And, you know, like you were saying, I think that forcing people to look at things from all sides is helpful, even if they don't change their opinion. Right. At least they have a different perspective or they've allowed themselves to look at it from a different perspective. And at least maybe they'll have a little sympathy for someone with a different view something. or empathy or something, right? Something, something more than apathy. <laughs> just right, right, right. A little bit engaged. <laughs> just a little but, bit engaged. You know, I'm not, I'm not a rationalist type, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't really believe that arguments, people don't believe things for rational reasons. They believe things because they believe them and an argument might help them change their view or give them a different perspective, but it's not going to like, oh, that was so convincing. I've changed my view. That almost never <laughs> happens, right? So, when you put it that way, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's how I look at it. So by 
you know, making people think about things is useful for them. Mm-hmm. And maybe it makes them a little softer in their anger. And maybe it opens them up to possibly changing their view in the future. Mm-hmm. But you're never going to bludgeon someone over the head with arguments. Almost mm-hmm. nobody changes their mind that way, mm-hmm. in, in my view. And Hume, mm-hmm. Hume used to say that too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, that, that people just, beliefs are, you know, what's the more vivid idea in your head, not mm-hmm. what, what rationalism, some rational thought process deduction has produced. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm involved, like I've said, like I've, we've talked about it before, I've been involved in this Shakespeare authorship research, okay? Mm-hmm. And this is the way in my life that sort of philosophy showed me what's going on. It gave me a perspective to understand, I think, understand what's going on in ways that other people couldn't understand. Because I studied, I studied at, you know, in a master's program, I studied mostly Hume, Kant, and philosophy of science. And when you study philosophy of science, you know, you read Kuhn, you read these other philosophers, and you learn about how scientific theories develop and change, how, Mm. and it's another issue of perspective, right? I mean, they call it Mm -hmm. a paradigm, Kuhn calls it a paradigm shift, but it's really just looking at the same data, the same information from a different perspective and that giving you a better handle on it right Mm -hmm. so you look at the you know i mean the famous example is you look at the motion of the planets and then you think about what's going on and you know copernicus said well maybe the sun's in the center and you're you're seeing the same data you're seeing the same movement of the planets Mm -hmm. you're just looking at it from a different perspective and does that new perspective help you or hurt you in understanding what's going on right Mm -hmm. And so when I looked into the Shakespeare authorship question, who wrote the works of Shakespeare? This Mm -hmm. has been a debate that's going on for 150 years at least. And so I started looking into it. And what was clear to me is that the philosophy of science told me what was going on here. Because Kuhn had the the, the deep insight that a, a, a good theory is producing good research mm. based on that theory. It's sort of prov- creating a research program. And if, if Shakespeare okay. wrote the works of Shakespeare, if that was a good theory, then when people study Shakespeare's life mm-hmm. and they studied the works, they would reinforce each other. The more you mm-hmm. studied his life, the more you'd understand the works based upon that study. Mm-hmm. if it was a correct theory, but hmm. that hasn't been happening in the last hundred years. Studying Shakespeare's life doesn't produce anything in, in understanding the works. In fact, they don't even have a really theory or a, a clear narrative of how Shakespeare's life aligns with the, the, the composition of these works, right? Okay. He was involved in acting them. He was, he was involved in the, uh, part owner in the acting company that produced them, but actually composing them, there's mm-hmm. nothing that aligns, right? Mm-hmm. So That's you a have... really interesting way to, to get at that. I mean, I, right. I've not heard it said this way. And when I was talking to uh, someone about you and your, and and that Shakespeare, I should say, in my head, it's anti-Shakespeare work. Right. Um, 
they were saying, uh, yeah, you know, this is this isn't anything new. This is something that people have been bringing up and studying, researching for for quite a while. But I think that that is quite a clear way of why it's something to question and that we can apply that to all kinds of other things that if that they should align <laughs> if we have this theory about Shakespeare or anything else and then we look at Shakespeare or anything else we should it should reinforce the thing the theory but or support it in some kind of way and if it doesn't then well then we need to look the for alternatives begin right and we need to look for alternatives that might Mm-hmm. The problem is, and this is where the philosophy also is helpful, I think. Mm-hmm. Most of the research done against Shakespeare, if you want to phrase it that way, has been really, really bad. <laughs> so the, <laughs> okay. the anti-Shakespeare people uh-huh. are worse than the Shakespeare people. So you have <laughs> what I like to call, call uh, a circular firing squad of wrong Uh, where the Shakespeare scholars are saying something that's probably not correct. And then mm -hmm. the anti-Shakespeare people are coming up with theories that are even worse. So they're fighting with each other where they're both wrong. And one is more wrong than the other, kind of. I mean, it's like, (laughs) which which part of wrong is, is less wrong, right? Yeah. So you've got this just mess of people fighting with each other about something where they're both just going out it the wrong way mm. and they can't see it because they're so angry at the other guy that they mm-hmm. can't see what they're doing is, is completely the wrong direction. And there's nobody to come and step in and say, okay, let's stop for a second and see what's really going on here. And let's try to be, you know, ra- I hate to say rational about it, but mm-hmm. at least methodical about it. Okay. Mm-hmm and try to figure out how to handle this. Mm-hmm. But everybody also has their own self-interest and their own right. ego involved too, right? Right. On, on top of that, they have their feeling like, my view is, is somehow righteous. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So Shakespeare came from nothing and wrote plays and how dare you suggest that somebody else did it? You're a classist monster is the, is the you know, is the normal, uh, critique. You're a classist. Mon- oh, I, I can't tell you what goes on. You know, my well, I father. I looked at the the comments on on your fallacy uh, YouTube uh, video. Right, right, uh, right. YouTube fallacy video. I was like, wow, this is getting heated. I didn't oh, that's nothing. That's nothing. I, I, that is such low key stuff compared to what goes on with this. Wow. I don't engage. I don't. I mean, I don't know if you saw yeah. my replies. I don't engage with people. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, I did. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of this, I went onto this Facebook group. Okay, this was in the very beginning of my research. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm old fashioned. I don't believe this, but I, you know, like you're saying, argument will answer it. So if I go right. into this group of people and I present some ideas and listen to their response, I'm going to get a better idea of what's going on. I went yeah. to this group. I had, I had just every post I would make. I would have three or four responses within five or 10 seconds attacking. Oh gosh. <laughs> okay. And there would be threads upon threads and deep threads and rabbit holes. And you know, it was like <laughs> this incredible yeah. conflagration because these people didn't have people to fight with, right? Mm. Because nobody would go on their group to fight with them and they wanted to fight, they wanted to argue. Mm-hmm. And I was naive. 
Mm. I thought that they cared about the answer. Mm. But I also wanted to <laughs> test. I wanted to test. Are these mm-hmm. these people had spent a lot of time on this, years on it? They're yeah. Almost. They're they're amateurs, but the they're the amateur experts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So expert amateurs. Exactly. So something like this. I mean, the whole thing's such a mess. I can't tell you because how people use authority on this game too. But yeah, the these people were very serious about this, and yeah. I thought, well, they must have good answers. They must have good. I didn't think that. I thought maybe they might. Turned out mm-hmm. they didn't. Hmm. Turned out they didn't have good arguments. They didn't have good answers. <laughs> they had a lot of bullying, a lot of nastiness. Mm. They repeated the same things over and over again. Mm. And they didn't really have an insight or an explanation to any serious critique. They just said the same apologetics. Mm. And that's why I call it apologetics because it's mm. really religious. It's really religious defense of religion rather than defense of history or or the study of you know a sort of a scientific inquiry it's religious for them and once i saw what was going on there that these people didn't really have good arguments mm-hmm. then i knew okay it's not like i'm completely off base here now my work begins and that's mm-hmm. the thing that that people don't understand they they take a religious view about this it's not a religious question. It's a factual question. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do real research and I'm going to do real research that anybody would classify as real research and we'll see what happens. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, they want to stop the research. They want to say that this isn't even a question. You're not allowed to research it. Mm-hmm. And traditional scholar, traditional scholars are not permitted to study this topic. They're not permitted to even discuss this topic. Literally, mm-hmm. it would be professional suicide to even mention this topic. If you're, uh, you know, a professor of Shakespeare studies or a graduate student, you cannot mm-hmm. even voice any, any, anything doubting Shakespeare at all. It's completely forbidden. Mm-hmm. So it has to be outsiders <laughs> like me. It has to be amateurs doing the research because the people in academia won't touch it. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, but you know, it's not a religion for me. Right. Right. There's, there's some interesting parallels, if I might interrupt you that are like popping up in my head. And this is, this is, it's <laughs> epiphanies are, are, are happening right now that, I mean, first of all, with, with specifically with your research, this is really interesting. Um, <laughs> and I'm glad that some wheel some gear is turning even if it's turning slowly um but then i think what you're saying if you weren't even speaking about shakespeare you can apply it to so many things um of course obviously right now i'm thinking about how i live in you know the desert the sticks of arizona and whenever i go into town the people i encounter are very uh single-minded um and don't want to hear criticisms because they um <clears throat> they've been entrenched in certain ways for so long and even and their beliefs are so religious right it, literally like dealing with god but in this this kind of uh, uh unquestioned devotion 
devotional type way. And, and it's very dangerous, whether you're talking about Shakespeare or American politics or um, a personal health and wellness. If, you are, if we are so devoted to a way that we think and believe is right, that we can't criticize that, that we can't be critical of that way, then we might be stuck doing the wrong things for a very long time. Yes, and, you know, <laughs> you have to give people some, some, you have to um, realize that there's, they're under huge social pressure, right? Yeah. So there's a huge social pressure to conform. Yeah. If everybody you know in your neighborhood has a certain view, mm -hmm. can you step outside that even right. privately? And what are the consequences for this? What are and, the consequences for that? Right? And, and this happens, I mean, in, you know, people with strong religious backgrounds, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. If you're brought up in a certain religious faith and you want to exit that faith or take a slightly different view of that, what are the consequences? And maybe right. you're married <clears throat> to somebody based on that faith and that's a core of your relationship. Right. If you have a change of view or, you know, you, you have children or whatever it is, what mm -hmm. are the consequences? The very and, real consequences. I mean, right. you're talking about financial support, emotional support, uh, just social, uh, knowing who we are, being uh, confidence. I mean, go to Maslow's hierarchy and, and that bottom level might drop out. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's the same the, thing for the Shakespeare stuff. It's bizarre, but it's true. So mm -hmm. let's say you're a, a rising graduate student studying Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And in your careful research, you've determined that you think that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. You think somebody else, that's what you're, you're, you study the Italian sources of Shakespeare and you study the, and you say, well, the author must've been able to read Italian. And you just mm -hmm. affirm on this because you know, these 20 reasons, the, the author must've been able to read Italian and you, there's no evidence that Shakespeare could read Italian. So maybe somebody, and that's your view. Maybe somebody mm -hmm. else read it. Your, your, your career is over if you, if you voice that view. Mm. And, you know, it's a silly thing. Who cares? I mean, I think it's a silly thing who wrote the works of Shakespeare. What does it matter, right? Right. But, you know, if you think people are faced with these kinds of problems in their real life, in, in things, you know, religion or politics or, or, you know, their own view of themselves or their mm -hmm. own identity, you know. Yeah. And they squash it. Push it down. Yeah. It's like the um, the Book of Mormon musical. You know, push it down, right? <laughs> you got to push it down, whatever it is. You better hide that, right? Yeah. And it's like, uh, how, you know, can you can you can you keep it down long enough? Can you right. can you keep it down, right? And I, I you know, people are, are are faced with these things every day, yeah. and you know, if people were more open to open inquiry and discussion, it might be better. But yeah. I don't think that's it. I mean, it would be better. I don't, I mean, you, you're a little more optimistic, I think, than me. It'd be I, better, I, but I don't, I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not the optimist. I mean, you walking into these, into this town, um, I, you know, you, you're brave. I, I, I honor you, but, you know, yeah. I don't, I live in, I live in an area where people look just, you know, I, my wife is, you know, frankly, my wife is Chinese. My kids are half Asian. And I live in a community where that's like the norm. Mm. So, I mean, I, you know, I've picked the place to live where, where we fit mm -hmm. right in, 
you know, nobody thinks mm-hmm. twice. Right. And, you know, there are and places where, we, where, where I could live where people would like, what, you know? Exactly. And I, I live in the Bay Area, you know, I mean, I live where this is. <laughs> That's the norm. <laughs> we're living in the norm, right? So, I mean, everybody, uh, you're, you're braver than me. <laughs> you're a risk taker in a way that I'm not and that's what I really that's the only thing I really want to talk about today you're risk taking and your oh bravery gosh. and what that says about you and what you think about life that's what really I care about not the rest of this <laughs> well I tell you what we've covered um definitely covered uh you know critical thinking and and applying philosophy to everyday right. life we there's there's been so much there already and I um whether however the hell you feel about it i think it's important and i appreciate what you've said you want to talk about kids um yeah well so the so the last question that i ask folks is about existential dilemmas um so if you (laughs) existential dilemma yeah what's your relationship with existential dilemmas um yeah so if you can just speak a bit on how as a philosopher let me ask this question as big as I can. Uh, how how has raising kids been for you as a philosopher, as a thinker? Well, I, I will tell you that it was very clear to me very early on that philosophy has no way of even slightly dealing with the issue of children and one's own children. So it's completely disconnected from the reality of everybody's life. Not everyone's, but you know, most people have children, right? Yeah. Either yeah. They, they have their own or they, they end up with somebody who has kids or, mm-hmm. you know, they're very, have close relationship with their nieces and nephews, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, you know, step grandkids, whatever it is, most, almost all people have some very close relationship with some child at some point. Mm-hmm. And there's no ethics about that. There's no traditional ethics, traditional philosophy. Can't cope <laughs> for a with long it. time, philosophers. Look, look at the trolley problem, right? Should I kill three or should I kill one? Okay, should I kill fifteen or should I kill my own my own niece? Yeah, you're gonna kill the fifteen. Right, you're gonna flip the switch. And there's no ethics that's gonna tell make you do differently. Okay, mm-hmm. you know. Would you, what would you do to save your own child? What would you do? You save your own nephew, right? What would you do? And how does that align with it? Yeah. You would do anything or almost anything. Maybe you wouldn't harm somebody, like seriously harm somebody, but anything less, you'd probably do it, right? Mm. And would you feel bad about it? Maybe you feel bad about it, but you'd do it anyway. And how, mm. how does philosophy tell you how to handle that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about utilitarianism, the, the greatest good for the greatest number, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that doesn't apply one second once you have your own kid. Your only value, in your own, I only, the, only, the truth of the matter is the only really thing I value in my life is my own children and mm. what I would do for them. Nothing else matters. I don't care about any of this stuff. So whatever's going on, I think about what's good for my kids, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing else. I don't really care about anything else because nothing else really matters to me. And there's no philosophy or ethics that can trump that fact. 
Mm -hmm. And um, religion is the same thing. You know, it amazes me. I mean, I'm going to be a little critical of religion. Mm -hmm. It amazes me that people are so concerned with their own salvation or their own sort of relationship with God. But I think a lot of religion isn't actually based on that. A lot of people's religious belief isn't focused on their own connection with God. Mm. It's more like my children's future salvation or my children's future, whatever future it is, how can I assure that? And people aren't mm. concerned about themselves in many ways, a mm. lot of people. And so religion, ethics, everything, it's always focused on the philosophers are focusing on me and my head and mm -hmm. people in general. And they never deal with the real issue is your own family, your own children. And it could be your own parents, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, the relationship goes both ways mm -hmm. and sort of the family as the, the center of everything, the family as the only ethics that really matters to people mm -hmm. are real ethics that actually looks at how people actually live should start there. And none of mm -hmm. it does. Right. That's the I mean, main that's thing. That's when we're talking I, about sociology or right, right. <laughs> it turns into some other technical field of study. Right. But it shouldn't. Right. It shouldn't. Philosophy needs to deal with this and needs to deal mm -hmm. with it directly if they're going to pretend to tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. I don't I think it's ridiculous. No, I mean, I, I want to speak for for the people who I hear listening to this in the future who are screaming um well that's what feminist philosophies came along and did that's what care ethics is that's what you know who all these other yes, philosophers yes. are but yeah absolutely if, if i mean we some don't start in these places right. when we're some philosophy, philosophy does deal with it mm -hmm. and but a lot of this stuff is also social you know it's like right i mean i'm not i haven't studied feminist philosophy in detail but of a lot of it says you know women as a group or you know you know, so sort of the struggles between men and women or whatever it is, mm -hmm. is it is it really focused on individual people and their own family relationships and how that's the central to their ethical life? If it is, I need to read this stuff. But yeah, it's definitely shifting the focus. Shifting the focus where we, there. Yeah, where we even start all this questioning, basically right, doing, right. you know, what you're saying we should do. Yes, if I am a single male uh person who is well off enough um to like um go off into the woods and live in a house right. by myself or if i'm a right. single female you exactly know, go and live I mean, in the desert sure I these mean, are going to be my concerns i get to get introspective i get to go inside for a few months right, but right. if i have two children and i am living paycheck to paycheck and i still have um very big uh, existential questions, they are going to sound and look different than those single people. Right. And so, yeah, those other philosophies are saying we can still ask these questions, but we're going to frame them quite a bit differently. <clears throat> what What is my life? What is my children's life going to look like? What is my family life going to look like? How can I access my needs and provide for them or us us <laughs> right really? exactly it's us. us it's all but for most people it's us mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. you know there's always almost always an us you know yeah. you know and people just downplay that and part of it yeah. is some of the religious traditions sort of extricate the philosophers from their families you know monastic mm -hmm. traditions and whatever but mm -hmm. it you can't separate people from that you can't separate even you know the the 
idea of this individualism idea that we ha- that people have and you know the guy's wandering around by himself in the in the state of nature and and chooses some land and decides to build it that never happened in human history people were always <laughs> connected to their families that's mm-hmm. how people have always been and that's mm-hmm. how people think and act and that's what they really care about yeah. and if you're if you're studying an ethics that isn't connected to what people really focus care about make decisions about it's not it's not human ethics it's something else right yeah you know it's robot ethics or something but we're not robots we're people and people are you know almost everybody's involved in some kind of very close family relationship that that overrides everything for them Mm -hmm. most people so yeah that's that's what kids having kids made for me is that i would look at some of this stuff and i'm like you're missing the point here Mm. You know, it's like Kant and his, you know, never lie. <laughs> you mm-hmm. never lie because, you know, because if people lie, it'd be bad. Okay, well, I agree. It's better to be honest, but, you know, they're coming to kill my kid and I've hidden him under the floorboards. Uh, is your kid there? I, okay, I'm not going to say yes. Right. <clears throat> you know. Yeah, that's a tough one. To, right? to, to try not, and teach it in part because those very real circumstances right. come up and it, it's hard to, to to refute reality with theory with right. with fantasy and I, I mean there's really no point right but even if you Kant would say well you should sacrifice your life fine i'll sacrifice mm-hmm. my life for the principle of being honest and count mm-hmm. on that god's going to help me in the end or something i'm mm-hmm. going to sacrifice my kid's life Mm-hmm. Right. So even if you say that you should do it, fine. I should donate my, my left kidney to a stranger because ethically that's good or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to donate my kid's left kidney. I'm, <laughs> right. You right? Yeah. I'm not going to do that. Right. <laughs> so, right. you know, I can make choices for myself. Well, I want to give one example. And it, I thought mm-hmm. it was very funny to me. And, okay. and I, I don't want to say who, but I had it <laughs> because it's a little, uh, little, I don't want to say who. Okay. So this professor, who's an excellent philosophy professor, mm-hmm. he said to he said to the class, you know, he liked virtue ethics, okay, and he said, well, I read this story, and this guy ran into a burning building to save a child, and he didn't even think twice about it; he just did it selflessly mm. to try to save this child, and that's the kind of you know, virtue that I aspire to. I hope someday I can be that selfless mm. and that willing to sacrifice myself, like this this hero who say who went in to save the child. Mm-hmm. I didn't say this in class because I didn't want to make a fight. Mm-hmm. But what I was thinking was, well, that's not how life works because I got two little kids at home. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't know what the probability is that I'm going to be able to save somebody if I run into that house, but I've got a duty to my kids and I'm not going to risk my life that way. Mm. I'm not going to do that because I've got to come home to my kids. And if I don't come home to my kids, Mm -hmm. then they're going to suffer the rest of their lives. Right. So Mm -hmm. my duty to my kids is more important to this than my duty to this stranger. And I'm not sure if I can save them anyway. Mm -hmm. And so unless you're working that type of ethics into your ethical system, mm-hmm. your obligation to the people that matter to you, because that is the essence of your ethical, that is what guides people ethically. 
can I, let me, let me ask you something. Cause that, that brings up a question in my mind. Cause I'm thinking, yes, this sounds nice and dandy. It sounds like you would, you would attempt that if possible for your own children, but not for some stranger's children. But do you think perhaps that really speaks to the blockage that a lot of people have that these important questions of what kind of, what kind of person we should be, what kind of virtues we should embody, um, those questions are fine until we put them into context of our own life. Like that's like, I mean, I don't mean to like put words, thoughts in your mind or anything, but it's like maybe people aren't even considering these, these, these virtues because they don't apply to them. They can't apply to them. I, I, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, I don't look at, <laughs> I don't look at things in, in terms of virtues and to begin with, I, yeah. I, I think it has to be practical. It has to be practical to people's okay. actual lives if you want to engage them seriously. Okay. And that's, that's, I, I don't think, I don't, I think you and I look at things a little bit differently because I think you, you want to save the world by <laughs> helping people think better and be more virtuous and sort of improve themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that's possible. Mm. And I think philosophy, I think it's a valuable thing in that way. And it could be, it could be, it could be possible to do that, to help people in that way. But um, I think that people are basically virtuous in their own way. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we need to increase people's virtue is not the issue. Mm -hmm. And I think you touched on it before, but I think the philosophy helps people understand issues, understand things better. So maybe they're more you know, empathetic or sympathetic or open-minded or less, less likely to be bamboozled, less likely to be conned in some ways. And if people are less likely to be conned, then they're more able to act on their basic decency. Okay. And I think people are being conned to be indecent. And, you know, you know, right now, you know, we have this thing with the masks and wearing the masks in the pandemic and people refusing to wear the masks. Mm -hmm. And they're being conned to be indecent because people are not indecent. Most people are not indecent. Mm -hmm. Okay, basically they're not, but they're conned into being that because the people people have, an, have a benefit by conning them. They get political mm -hmm. advantage, they get political power. Mm -hmm. Even racism, a lot of it is people pushing racist ideas for their own political power and mm -hmm. then conning people to be indecent mm -hmm. when, and you have generations of this going on. So it's hard to fix it. It's hard to, right. It, to, to, there's to, a lot. There's a lot there, right? You can't just turn a switch, but people have an incentive to push racism. People have an incentive to push divisiveness. People have an incentive to convince people not to wear masks because mm -hmm. it increases their political power. Mm -hmm or their control or their wealth or whatever it is. 
So mm-hmm. if you can help people think critically, like you're saying, mm-hmm. then maybe they're less likely to be conned. But I think that people are people don't even know they're being indecent because the con yeah. is so good. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I I I like that. I mean, I you know this is this is why you're one of the white guys I know because I, I appreciate you disagreeing kind of with something that is at my core because it is something that I keep having to come around to as far as like why why do I think this is going to work right. um, whatever that means and I think that you're I I, I agree with your disagreement I, I think you're absolutely right and I think you know that's something that I'm going to chew on. Um, as for the rest of the day and then as I, I you know go over this 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 episode is how deep is this con and what kind of cons are there and and what that means um I mean you know frankly fuck yeah well I mean you know I'm a, I'm a cynic disturbing. right I'm, I'm you know since I was a That's teenager right ask, like, when, okay so what, you're not irrational you're not a, a, a virtue that this is where where do you fall but I actually you're the cynic. I, I'm but I'm a cynic but I actually do believe people are basically decent most of them mm-hmm. yeah just yeah I, 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 I you know most people are kind to their families right yeah. Most people are people are kind to people in their community. Most people right. are generally. Right. And then they're sort of conned into the worst parts. I mean, I think right. racism is the is the biggest example of a con where people are yeah. being, you know, and it's generations. It's not like some easy thing to fix. Yeah. But they've been conned into this their whole life. Yeah. And their parents' lives. And it can be from their religion too, right? Right. And it can be, you know, it can be eth- ethnicism, whatever you call it, you know, against other religions, whatever it is, you know, they're brought up this way. Right. And they're brought up this way because the people who are, are pushing this have a, have a, get a benefit out of it. And that's the cynicism. Okay. Yeah. Is, you know, if you want to keep your power, you've got to push the other guy down. You got to deprive him of his rights, whatever it is, or, you know, make yourself feel better by hating somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's where the cynicism does come in. And I going, I mean, I spent a lot of time on this Shakespeare stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time dealing with the Shakespeare stuff, and it's my basic research, and it's also viewing how the arguments go and what's going on. And let me tell you, it creates an incredible amount of cynicism. Not mm-hmm. that I didn't have it already. <laughs> but my 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 estimation of people yeah and what they're willing to defend and you know the corner kind of arguments that they're willing to abide by because it it helps their position or keeps their power or whatever yeah. it is yeah and it doesn't create a great deal of uh faith in humanity no but like i said I do think that people are not as bad as we fear. Okay. I think that people are not as bad as one might fear, but I think they're easier to con than people realize. And so I think that if we can, if you can explode the con and philosophy can help with mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that can help. I believe that. that. Might be- that might be a quote that I use for you. For okay, something like this. That's, something yeah, that's like pretty this. good. But I've um, been a cynic and a and a 
you know, a, a negative guy since I was a teenager, probably since I was a child. I mean, this is not new. Yeah. I, I, and <laughs> nothing in life is, has changed my view of anything, but, um, <laughs> you know, that's the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all just people. That's, that's the one thing I, you know, we're just people, right? Yeah. Having kids is something that people do. And part of the thing that philosophers get people away from understanding is that we need to talk about what actually is going on. And it's what Hume calls the is-ought problem, right? Mm. Are we, is, is, is philosophy talking about what is or what talking about what ought to be? Mm. And for me, it's more about talking about what is and trying to understand it. And then each of us can figure out what we want to do. And that's great. But first you have to understand what is, and like you were talking about sociology, philosophy and sociology aren't that different and shouldn't be that different. Right. Because studying people and how they are and psychology and Hume was a psychologist, right? Hmm. Basically he was a psychologist and in our modern terminology, a philosopher and a psychologist. So mm -hmm. studying the is, is important and people do have families and it is important to them. That's what I wanted to say about families. And as far as you, I want to talk about your risk taking <laughs> and okay. what that means for the for you philosophically in mm. terms of your, you know, your physicality and how you, you know, you, your practice. You have a, a sort of a practice, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's religious for you or philosophical or, and and how that interacts with sort of your views of other people and, and yourself and stuff. I want to, mm -hmm. I want to have some, even, even if you don't put this in your, in your video, I want to know a little bit about that. Cause I think, <laughs> you know, it's really quite interesting, right? Yeah. So yeah. what is, what is that for you? Do you feel yourself yeah. as a risk taker physically? Do you? The more, especially so, so I've been doing pole for about seven years now. Right. Um, I never felt like much of a risk taper taker when I was just dancing. Um, okay, even okay. though like, you know, there's choreography Injuries, that we did right? like on, on pool tables and yeah, I mean, being a dancer, something always right, hurts. Right. Um, and there's, you know, balancing on people like at a mild level of, of, of that kind of stuff. But with pole, um, and this is something that, you know, you learn very, very quickly as a beginner, it hurts. It is physical uh, pain. Uh, um, you get calluses, your muscles right. hurt, you find new muscles, there's skin that has to be conditioned. You know, you have to wear, literally peel away skin wow. so that new skin can grow back tougher right. so that you can do stuff. Um, and, you know, every part of the body gets used at some point. Um, you know, it's a joke that I tell, especially like parties when I teach, when I get to teach pole parties, it's like, yeah, right. you know, I've got a great body and most of us pole dancers were really skimpy stuff, but that's for safety because I'm uh, going to be holding on with right, like right. <laughs> my butt cheek. You know? right, 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 right. <laughs> like I'm not trying to show off my ass. I'm just trying well, to you like are, not You are fall. trying to show off a little bit. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So there is that. But, um, but the risk taking, you know, the, especially the last three years, um, cause I've been actually competing professionally. Right. Like I, I won a competition and that's how I got my pro card. Oh, okay. um, and I make money. I make some money doing this art. 
Do it really? So, so I'm a professional. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I know a professional pole dancer. That's very yeah. cool. <laughs> and the studio where I teach in Las Vegas is owned by Cirque du Soleil artists. And oh, so, wow. you know, I am on the roster with other people who are Cirque du Soleil performers. So right, it's, right. it's kind of a big deal. Uh, so that risk taking has definitely come in in the last three years that with taller poles, with harder tricks, with, um, yeah, I mean, the standard right, right. pole in our studio, those are 13 and a half feet tall. Okay. My pole that I have in my backyard is just under 10 feet. Um, so, um, so if I'm working with anything under 13 feet, I don't think it's that bad. Right, but right. I do still realize, um, you know, once I get up there, once I get up to 10 feet or whatever, oh, if I, if I, if I don't do something right, I, I could die. I could seriously hurt myself. Um, right. I am aware of that. Right, right. Um, where philosophy has come in, it's been a couple of things. One is that mind-body stuff. Like, I kind of hated it before when I was learning it. Right. Uh, in school, I was like, this is such bullshit. These philosophy, these philosopher dudes think that they can separate their minds from their bodies and that that's something that's important. And like, they don't know what it's like to have a uterus and they don't know what it's like to do this. And I just thought it was just like the stupidest thing to like create an entire like philosophical world about until I started doing pole. And then I, and when I started teaching pole and I have to really be like, this is hurting me, but it's not going to kill me. So uh, I need to focus uh, on something else. Right, right, or right. if I start thinking about things that are going on outside uh, in my life, I, I start thinking about my day job, my stresses that I have, like how much money am I going to be able to pay my bills? If I start focusing on any of that, I'm going to fall. I, I will right, literally right. fall. And so it is such a like such a like singular amount of like singular focus has to happen um in the moment and um when I'm trying to convince myself or work through problems I I, I do get back to that well that's just my physical body let me think rationally about what my physical body needs in order to make this possible and now let me get my brain on board my mind on board with so this. that yeah that's 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 been a huge thing for me um i mean pain physical pain is uh, ripping skin on metal right right <laughs> i can't purpose. imagine have you had have you had injuries like yeah um so i mean i don't go to the doctor much because of of healthcare needs but i'm pretty sure i after one competition i bruised a rib um, I haven't broken anything. Right. Um, I did strain my thumb when I was spotting a student one day, my thumb just went back too far. Oh, wow. And so that got all discolored. Um, I, like I've said, I've torn off a lot of skin, um, you know, busted open blisters or right. calluses. Um, my toe was out of place for a little while because of a handstand for the better part of two years ago and then it popped into place after like six months or something oh, wow. <laughs> so there's like little stuff like that right right um, I, I again i haven't broken anything knock on wood um i have students we have students who have um either being on their apparatus or like something related to it um but we i mean safety is huge uh just depending right. on what the apparatus is whether we're putting down mats 
or um, just like knowing points of contact, how many things are holding on to uh, the apparatus. So pole, especially, that's a huge thing when I'm teaching. It's like, no, you're safe if you don't let go with your hands, just keep right, holding right, on. Right, right, right. <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would be so nervous just watching these. I, I'm nervous watching you. <laughs> and you know, this is sort of, you know, sort of like the neurotic scale or whatever. I mean, I literally get nervous watch. I, I love watching your videos because you're so artistic, but I get nervous, right? And I think that would make me so crazy. I mean, I'd be so worried about these people. And yeah. as a, you know, talking about parenting, you know, as a father, I've always been, you know, limited the risks my kids take. Mm. You know, I have not, they were not risk takers to begin with because they're my children, right? <laughs> you know, sort of you right. pick up stuff from your parents. Yeah, no, I um, I I started pole. My mom actually gave me a Groupon to take pole classes um, when I was like just before I turned thirty, and wow. um, so it's, it's your one mom's of those things, fault, right? It is her fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where like people who are adults who either have a gymnastics or dance or whatever other like high level physical background, right. you know, we get to be, you know, in our thirties, and it's like, well, what am I supposed to do with this, like? passion for physical activity and pole is really really good uh for it because you just there's so many different things well any of the circus arts um aerial arts because it's just it's just fun i mean right. flying through the air is pretty amazing right <laughs> and it's it's a new challenge i mean gosh like figuring out how to hold on by like my knee and my foot all while I'm spinning, like fighting centrifugal forces. <laughs> like, but it, but it, it sort of transformed your body too, right? I mean, yeah. So you That's... sort of like almost like metamorph metamorphosed yourself. <laughs> yeah. Through this this practice, right? Which I, I, mean, like, I guess even noticed right? for a while. Uh, yeah, because it's like again, you know, I've always been doing something physical, but in in the last few right, years, right. especially, I'm like, oh no, things have changed. I've definitely like toned up I, right. I i have way more body awareness than um, i used to right right um i mean hell i watch videos of myself sometimes that i could don't believe that i did the things right, right. <laughs> well it's 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 i mean it's not i mean it's way out there in terms of i mean you've got to put in a clip I mean, people need to see this but you know people i don't know if people are going to hear this but anyway one needs to actually see it to believe it, what you're actually <laughs> doing. And, and, you know, you're middle of nowhere in Arizona doing it sometimes, or you yeah. take your poles to these destinations. That's what I really loved when yeah. you would take your pole somewhere crazy. Yeah. It's like, it's yeah, like, I'd love to do that more. It's, it's a surreal thing because it doesn't seem real. How could somebody do that? And for me is how somebody would do something so scary. I mean, I, it's not just the physicality of it. It's just like the, the daring of it. And, and then it's sort of like, it, it's sort of like a, almost like a dream type thing, right? <clears throat> yeah. And the, 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 the un, unbelievability of it, um, you know, honestly, I think that's kind of what keeps, keeps us going back to it. Um, right, we all right. kind of admit that we're, we're a little crazy for doing the stuff that we do. Like the, the, studio, the studio where I work now in Las Vegas, um, 
it's the new space and those ceilings are 25 feet high. Um, um, so, you know, I don't even go up that high. Like I right, can't right. with my pole, like my, our, so there's people who do crazier stuff, right? but how do I say this? It's a reason that I love teaching, whether it's philosophy or pole is getting to see people do things that they didn't think they could do right right and poll especially these these women these men these children come in and they think nope i can't do that they see me demonstrate something and they're like that's why no right uh, hard no and then they figure it out the their steps to do it we go through the steps and then they do it and it's just this like wow I, that's me right, right. <laughs> doing it because it's amazing. And, you know, I would imagine it's a lot more satisfying than teaching philosophy because it there's is. such a, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, totally not is. to knock philosophy teachers. <laughs> no, it is. Some of my favorite people are philosophy professors, but, yeah, you know, there's, you can see people, you can, you, you're teaching somebody how to do something and they actually do it. You're like, wow. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was the reason that I got out of philosophy. That's the reason that I didn't go on to PhD. Um, I mean, yeah, I didn't get into the one school that I really wanted, but really I didn't want to spend another seven or however many years not actually acting in the world. Right. Right. Well, um, it's a very strange, the PhD thing is a very strange world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as I've learned yeah. in, in the, you no, know, it was never, I was never seriously considering that. And mm. with the Shakespeare stuff, I do see inside academia way more than I want. Mm. And, and it's a mess. I mean, <laughs> it's a mess. But, you know, I do think that people, people are, who are drawn to that, mm -hmm. I'm glad they have the opportunity. You know, mm -hmm. if you're so passionate about this stuff that you want to be engaged with it every day for years, for more years. I mean, we were engaged for about two years or whatever, you know, the program yeah. was. Yeah. And sort of, I was satisfied. I, you know, I, I was satisfied. I mm -hmm. got the things I wanted to study, I did. And I was satisfied. And I don't read philosophy books, you know, much. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I mean, I think about it normally, but for me, it was like, it was like an itch and I scratched it and I was mm -hmm. happy with that. Mm -hmm. And it took me forever to finish my thesis. It took me years and years. Like uh, I went to the absolute limit of, <laughs> of seven years. Oh, and God. every semester that the, the, my advisor would email me, you make any progress? I said, not yet. I'll talk to you next semester. <laughs> and I had a lot of stuff going on with the family and all, but I was procrastinating because at that point I didn't care. I was already yeah. satisfied, right? Yeah. And it was just to getting the credential. I mean, I eventually did do it, but it was just sort of the credential, but I had satisfied my itch, Yeah. right? Now, yeah, my real there's... problem with the Shakespeare stuff is I've satisfied my itch, but my ego won't let me stop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got, so, I got a little taste of that when you said, you know, these people, they're, 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 they're critical of what I have to say, but it doesn't matter because I'm right and they're wrong. Well, the, the thing is, it's different from philosophy. That's the thing. Philosophy is like, well, my ethical system is better than yours. Yeah. Or linguistics, my my uh, syntactic representation is, is more correct than yours. 
it's different from I, I I'm saying something different here. I'm saying mm -hmm. this guy wrote these plays, okay? Yeah. Either yeah. he did or he didn't. It's a it's a factual question, okay? Yeah. So it's I'm dealing with something real. Now it, yeah. could, it could be that it's completely in my head that I'm mm -hmm. completely wrong, mm -hmm. but at least it's an empirical question. Right. Arguing in circles about <laughs> philosophy or arguing yeah. in circles about uh, linguistics or something. Mm -hmm. where you're just looking at two sides of a different coin. And a lot of Shakespeare people try to turn it into philosophy or literary theory. Mm. And my point is, no. <clears throat> it's not that. It's just factual, an empirical question. <laughs> empirical, factual question. And maybe we can't resolve it, but I'm going to do my best. Yeah. And if I'm wrong, either I'm right or I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. well, then, then I'm uh, wasted a lot of time, didn't I? But yeah. that's okay too. I mean, you know, so it, it's a different, it's, I've never been involved in anything like this mm. where there's a fact of the matter. And I use my philosophical arguments and sort of arsenal to sort of try to understand what's going on and try to attack my own view to, to see if I'm wrong. Yeah. And I do do that aggressively. People don't believe this. They're like, mm -hmm. oh, you're just confirmation bias. Oh, you're just, you know, want to want to argue with people. But it, I mean, nobody believes me, but I really do try to look at it. And I don't want to waste my time if I'm wrong. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> if I wouldn't be, wait, I, what I want to tell people is I wouldn't be wasting so much time if I was wrong. What do you think I am, an idiot? Right. And, right. you know, nobody, they'll say, well, of course, everybody thinks that. Well, fine. Everybody thinks that, but they are idiots and I'm not. So you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. nobody's going to believe it. that, right? I right, mean, right? Nobody's going to believe that. It's not a polite way to say it. Yeah. And, but that's my view. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I wouldn't be wasting my time if I was wrong. Yeah. Anyway, I got to go deal with my family. Nice okay. to talk to you. <laughs> Very nice talking. You know, if you the pandemic's over and you're in California, come say hi, right? <laughs> I, my brother lives out there now. Okay, I've still got so, friends in the Bay, so I you need know, you to. Can, okay. All <laughs> right. Sounds good. Have a great day, man. Talk to you later. All right, bye-bye.